This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm uh, delighted to be here for the second year for the Siobhan Dowd Lecture. Um, to be very brief, uh, we uh, are an organisation that makes grants to literacy projects. Siobhan was a wonderful writer who um, burnt um, like a shining meteor. She was very quick. I published her first story in an anthology of mine in 2003. I sent it to my agent and then she wrote four amazing books, um, including The London Eye Mystery, Bog Child, which won the Carnegie posthumously, Solace of the Road and A Swift Pure Cry. Um, and then sadly died uh, in 2007. But she left her royalties on the books to the trust to fund activities such as getting books to kids who wouldn't otherwise get them. So it's, 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 uh, it's all about books for Siobhan. It's all about story. Um, and the one thing I always wanted to do, we do a, a variety of things. We're going to show you a little film. But I always wanted to, to do this lecture. I thought it would be a wonderful way of remembering Siobhan and getting some terrific writers to come and talk about their work, their feelings about books and writing, um, and um, a, a, as part of a way of remembering Siobhan's name. So that's why we're all here. This is the second one we've done. Patrick Kness did it last year. We've asked Matt Haig to do it. So I'll talk a little bit about Matt Haig after we show you our, our brief film, if that's okay. Yeah? Siobhan Dow Trust has a simple aim, to bring the joy of reading to the children and young people who need it most. We support many projects, here are just three to show the work we do. For three years, the Trust has supported the work of Readwell, who provide books and storytellers to seriously ill children in hospitals throughout the UK. The books are a great icebreaker for the children as well, to take their minds off what they're actually going through. They can see their wee minds taken over. Whatever book they've read, you know, I find, especially the younger ones, they go to a good experience, yeah, yeah. but they feel good, and yeah, you yeah. get so much more for them. We also help schools. Fleming Fulton is a special needs school in County Antrim with a purpose-designed new library thanks partly to one of our grants. The most this July we organised for 60 young people in care to come to Yelp, the Young Adult Literature Convention, which is part of London's Comic Con. It shrewd at first, I was thinking, what are they doing? And then, uh, and then later on it's like, right, I get you now, now that's very good, yeah. It's like, wow! Really, and they don't get to spend much time thinking about 
fantasy because the world, you know, the reality comes too soon for them. It's an opportunity for young fans to meet authors like Mallory Blackman. I hasten to add we don't just concentrate on projects in Northern Ireland and London. We, um, we have done some projects in Scotland as well. Uh, Craig Miller, I think someone, Craig Miller's here today. Um, so that's us, that's what we do. Um, uh, the lecture is very important to me, um, uh, as I've said, to remember Siobhan. Um, and it's very hard to find the right kind of person to do that. So we thought very hard about who would do the first one, Patrick. Patrick is, is terrific. And then we talked a lot about who we should get to do the next one. Um, we're both, you know, Kate and I uh, are fans of um, uh, Matt's work. Uh, I first encountered Matt's work when he was blogging for Book Trust. And I thought, yeah, he's pretty good. You know, he's, he's all right. And um, so, you know, um, uh, so I read some of his stuff, you know, and he, he's written some good things. Uh, Last Family in England, The Dead Father's Club. I thought it's a great title. The Radleys. Uh, the Humans, I'm very taken with The Humans, it was a wonderful book. Um, uh, and he's written for children as well, The Shadow Forest, The Runaway uh, Troll. Lots of prizes, lots of success. Um, and uh, he, he's a very funny, very good blogger. Uh, the thing, I'm thinking about an introduction for Matt, I, I, I thought I must say something. Uh, and he's done some great lists, he's a great list maker. Um, and the one I looked at, he's got a list that says Things I Love. And the first thing is Rome. Yeah, I'm with you on that, Matt. The lights fading in a tsunami. Yeah, very nice. Norway, he likes that. Uh, motorways at night. Smells, pine, old books, fried garlic. My wife's here. I'm with you on all of that. But then, uh, I'm afraid there was one item on the list I thought, I'm not sure about that, Matt Hagen anymore. Um, we'll have to agree to differ on Marmite and peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah. Uh, Marmite is the spawn of the devil. But... Um, <laughs> That's uh, what my speech is about. That's what his speech is about. So I'm going to hand you over to Matt now, and, and he will take you to places you've never been before. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> I'm actually going to sit here. I might as well stay here. So. I had a dream like... Oh, sorry. Um, you can hear me. Can you? Because I'm going to be talking for like... 25 You've got your chest mic as well. Oh, yeah, I've got my chest mic, so I don't have to do that. Yeah, yeah no, you don't. You can hear me. That's good. Yeah, I, I've done this before, I think. <laughs> but you wouldn't know it. Um, yeah, I had a dream last night that I had a migraine. And I get those sort of vision migraines where you can't see. So I've been drinking water because I had a little bit of gin last night at the opening party. But I'm all right. It's okay. My vision's okay. I can see this. Right. Speech voice. Okay. I'll, um, I'll start with the question. What is the point of books? I mean, if an alien from the Andromeda galaxy came down to Earth and after inquiring about clothes and the Kardashians <laughs> and motorways and the great British Bake Off <laughs> then asked us what a book is for, what would we say? Well, I think the short answer is that a book can be and do anything you want. But that might just be a bit of a cop-out, however nice it sounds. A book can't really be anything. You could try and kick a book, but it doesn't mean a book can be a football. Personally, the thing I'd want to get across to the alien 
is that books are very important to humans. I might even go so far as to say that they are necessities to us. We need them. They help make us who we are. But then the alien might say, hold on, there are nine million known species on your planet, and very nearly all of them survive without reading books. Even among those species nearing extinction, a lack of access to a bookshop or a library is rarely the cause of the crisis. There are no pandas panicking about not having read The Fault in Our Stars. The alien would say that necessities are things like food and drink. A book is not a necessity. And I suppose in one sense the alien is right. We are biological organisms that can sustain ourselves perfectly well physically without ever having read A Bridge to Terabithia or Watership Down or The Outsiders or 1984 or the poems of Emily Dickinson or Siobhan Dowd's great novels. But books are a different kind of nourishment. They are soul feeders. They are maps for the terrain of our secret selves. I then tell the alien what I now know to be true. Books can save your life. I don't mean that in a vague, airy-fairy way either. I don't just mean that books can enrich your life or make it a bit more valuable or help you impress your friends. But they can, of course, do those things. I mean that books can actually help keep you alive. Let me explain. When I was in my early 20s, I suffered a breakdown. Breakdown is a word that's frowned upon these days, but that is how it felt. I'd been functioning pretty normally, and then, within the space of a day, I wasn't feeling anywhere near normal. I had a panic attack that lasted a week. Then, after that, I was in a state of anxiety and depression that I just couldn't get out of. Feeling totally trapped, I wanted to end my life. For a short while, death seemed a much better prospect than being alive. It wasn't a considered, well-thought-out death wish. I suppose it was more like being trapped inside a burning building and choosing to jump out of the window. I very nearly took my own life. I'd very nearly thrown myself off a literal cliff, and for a long while after that moment, suicide stayed a possibility. While I was still in a state of intense depression, me and my poor patient girlfriend went to my parents' house in Newark-on-Trent to live for a while. Returning to your hometown isn't always the most advisable thing to do when you are in the midst of mental illness, especially as my hometown was um, especially invented solely with the intention of making teenagers want to escape the place. <laughs> and as a teenager, I had craved to be anywhere else. When I was growing up, it didn't even have so much as a bookshop or a cinema. It was, I was entirely sure, the very dullest place on earth. Poor Newark, it's not that bad. <laughs> it is a bit better now. Um, it's being gentrified. They've got a nice cafe, my mum says. Um, <laughs> yeah, there I was at the age of 24, back in my teenage bedroom. But the thing with my teenage bedroom was that there were books there. Books I'd read as a teenager. Everything from C.S. Lewis to Stephen King by Rosemary Sutcliffe, Sue Townsend and S.E. Hinton. Andrea, my girlfriend and future wife, 
suggested I read some of them to take my mind off things. So I tried, but it was hard. I obviously steered clear of Stephen King because my head was already one long horror novel. I only had to close my eyes to see horrible things. But reading anything was hard. The simple act of concentration when you have, a, have got a cyclone of oppressive thoughts going through your head is incredibly challenging. But then going to the corner shop to buy some milk was incredibly hard too. The first thing I read was lines in a small book of quotations I had. But then one day I started reading The Outsiders again. The Outsiders by Essie Hinton had been my favorite book as a teenager and was probably a book I'd read eight times, so reading it was quite easy. I knew the story, I managed to connect with it and to connect with those younger and healthier versions of me who had read it nearly a decade before. It was an escape, but also a way of focusing, a way of choreographing the anarchy of my mind for a little while. Also, it was a proper story with proper characters. It had a beginning and a middle and an end. And when you are stuck inside depression, or I suppose any illness, you want to believe more than anything in the possibility of change. And stories, if you think about it, are just that. They are about change. Something has to happen for a story to be a story. Increasingly, over the next few months, I'd read more and more and more. It wasn't a magic wand. I still felt terrible, but it was a way of focusing on something that wasn't my own head. It was the only thing I had, really, as music often triggered panic attacks, and I was phobic about taking pills. But I would also write, too, write little lines about what I was feeling like. The stuff I wrote was rubbish, but it helped. I wrote and wrote and wrote. Eventually, I started writing short stories. By giving something a narrative shape, I was beginning to believe in the shape of my life again, reading and writing, the two things working together. Along with more boring things like eating well, these helped focus my mind. Pretty soon, I was getting a handle on the panic attacks. I was able to beat the agoraphobia I had developed too. <coughs> I was understanding myself again and what my views and perspectives on this world actually were. Reading and writing became very important to me. I'd lost the joy of reading for a few years, which can ironically happen when you study English at university, like I did. But now the passion was back. I wasn't able to socialize and found going outside difficult. I was very much at risk of drowning in my own mind. So books became my life rafts. They really did keep me afloat, even as the depression lingered. The main thing about depression is that it is internal. You feel very isolated and trapped inside your own mind. Your head might be on fire, but you know no one can see the flames. The external world feels alien because everyone is going on about their business as normal. People are still burning their toast and playing tennis and driving their cars and worrying about their exams or mortgage payments. And yet you are walking around feeling like you've been cut and pasted from the seventh circle of hell. When you suffer from depression or its common twin anxiety, something as simple as going to the shop for a paper can be a heavy slog for an existential war zone. I've had a few very difficult times in my life, 
things anyone would, re would recognise as difficult. But among the most challenging was stuff like going on an escalator in John Lewis, feeling as, my mind was, as if my mind was imploding, or sitting in the back of a taxi, feeling a depression so strong it seemed to burn. And of course, just lying awake at four in the morning, feeling weak as the world seems to be testing its strength against you. Years later, when I wrote about depression in a memoir called Reasons to Stay Alive, people worried I would fall back into that place. But while I found depression quite unbearable, writing about it was always fine. It felt like a release. Depression is a bit like a vampire. It can die in the light. You take this intense, isolating, internal thing and you give it words and it instantly becomes less alien. You put something in words, give something a name and it makes it seem normal. The depression might feel exactly the same, but the way you see it changes. Maybe that's the reason why words exist at all. You can deal with it better. And reading always worked the same way too. I'd often read war poems when I was ill and would strangely feel better to understand that feelings of terror and sadness weren't my, mine alone. So reading heals. And not just me. I've heard from loads of people recently, especially young people, who have told me about how reading and writing helps them in real, tangible ways. And I strongly believe that books and reading shouldn't just be valued as things that help you get a job. They are so much bigger than that. Recently, our education minister has spoken about how the arts, including literature, are overvalued, and that, for the good of their career prospects and for society at large, 18-year-olds should think about doing something else at university other than reading books. There is this idea that art and books and stuff like that are somehow a luxury, while subjects like maths and science and computing are the things we should really be pushing. This is, to paraphrase Chaucer, a load of bollocks. <laughs> yes, science and maths are important, but so are books. And not just non-fictional ones either. Fiction is as important to, to society as dreams are to the individual. I often talk about libraries, about how they are almost the only public spaces that don't like our wallets more than they like us. While fiction itself is an important space too. People don't just read books to escape. We read to find new parts of ourselves. We think we're in this one-room house. Books make you realise you're a mansion. Reading's the way to find the lost parts of you, to know what's there, what you have, to work out how far you can dream. Those periods of my life when I shunned reading were the lost parts of my life. Books help us see ourselves and each other properly. They also help us become better, happier, more empathetic human beings. Which is, which is why it's so important that young people, people at school, are not put off books. Because the actual genuine proven benefits of books, things like imagination and education, uh, education and happiness, are as necessary now as they have ever been. The increasing personal, social, economic and technological challenges facing young people right now are immense. Mental health problems are rising in all age groups, but most markedly for those under the age of 18. Rates of a variety of problems are growing rapidly, 
not only depression, but also anxiety, self-harm, ADHD, and eating disorders. Comprehensive statistics for mental health problems are always hard to find because mental health problems are often invisible and people remain reluctant to talk about them. But some things we know. We know, for instance, that half of all adults with mental health issues develop their illness as teenagers. We also know that last year, according to the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, there was a staggering 70% increase in the number of 10 to 14-year-olds attending A&E for self-harm related reasons. And we know that suicide remains a massive problem. In fact, more teenagers die from suicide than from all forms of cancer, heart disease, influenza, lung disease, pneumonia, and birth defects combined. And as suicide is something that varies a lot around the world, these are preventable deaths, and we need to do more to stop them. Suicide is cultural, so we need to look at our culture and see where the problems lie. In doing events to promote my depression book, I have come across lots of worried teenagers and their parents, often 13 or 14 year olds. Seeing their worried faces and not really being able to solve things is quite tough, and I certainly don't have the answers. But an increasing amount of evidence backs up my personal experience. If you go on, say, the Reading Agency's website, you'll see survey after survey showing how much reading helps people. It lowers stress levels, raises happiness, and just makes you feel better. It also makes the world a better place by increasing that most human of things, empathy. Novels can help us understand people who are, on the surface, nothing like us. It is very easy these days to live in quite a narrow world. We can, thanks to the internet, surround ourselves with people exactly like us. The world that teenagers are growing up in, in some ways, is a shrinking one. But novels resist that. They make us understand worlds we never knew and people we never liked. They give us new experiences, fun or dangerous ones, without risking our physical health. They change our brain chemistry. They can send us to other worlds. They can take us to another time. Also, the old idea of the bookish loner is wrong. The latest research shows that being an active reader actually makes you be more social. But even that, I think, is missing the point. When I was ill, and any form of physical socialising was impossible, books became, in themselves, my social life. Books connect us to the world. They aren't an alternative to friends. They can be friends in and of themselves. In an age where kids are made to feel more pressure about their bodies, books remind us that our physical self matters little next to our minds. It is in our minds where we can truly be free, in a way a body, bound by gravity and biology and time, never can be. In Siobhan Dowd's novel, The London Eye Mystery, she says that knowledge can be like the skin on the surface of the water in a pond, or it can go all the way down to the mud. It can be the tiny tip of the iceberg or the whole hundred percent. Books give us the chance to go the whole hundred percent. So reading is now a rebellious act a way of going deep in a world that wants us to stay shallow. 
a way of building a force field to prevent our minds weakening in the face of 24-hour social lives and pop-up advertising, which might explain why, among the young at least, books are thriving. But we must remember that books aren't in opposition to technology. They are technology, not just in the sense of e-books and Kindle, but in the sense that they have been a tool that has been ever-progressing from clay tablets in ancient Mesopotamia 5,000 years ago, reaching perfection in the lovely hardback and paperback objects we know today. They are timeless. It is very unlikely that, in 10 years' time, a book will seem old-fashioned. But an iPhone will. And ultimately, in this age of connectivity, books are the things that really connect us to the world and to each other and to ourselves. Just think of what books can do. They can become the basis for an entire religion. They can start revolutions. They can transform societies. They can impart ideas that end up changing the world. Think of the Bible or the Communist Manifesto or Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams or The Rights of Man by Thomas Paine, a book that inspired democracy across the globe. Well, what books can do to societies, they can also do to individual people. Whether it is fiction or non-fiction, books can change you, and change you more profoundly than any drug in existence without damaging your liver. So, I am optimistic about things. I am someone who believed that I wouldn't live to see my 25th birthday. I am now 40 years old. At least part of the reason I am still here is to do with reading and writing. I have now seen with my own eyes how reading can change other people's lives too. Books are one of the fundamental things that make us feel human. They are maps helping us locate who we really are. We must never sideline books or trivialise them or see them as a nice little middle-class luxury or GCSE the life out of them. We should never let this or any other government put any barriers between a human being and a book. Books are for all of us and for every stage of our life. We should be faithful to them in sickness and in health because they will always be there when we really need them. They are the still centre in the whirlwind of modern existence. They can help us and they can change us and make us better people. They help raise us, they sort us out, they can become our friends, they can be our medicine. They might one day even save our lives. Thank you. Um, I'd like to thank Matt for that. It's a wonderful speech, extremely good, uh, which throws into uh, light just what an awful chair I am because I forgot to do all the housekeeping at the beginning. Um, fire exits, all that kind of stuff. Uh, okay, and uh, Matt will also be signing his books uh, in the interestingly named Adult Tent. Um, I'll leave it there, okay, after the event. Um, we I was also going to say that there will be time for questions um, from the audience. 
Um, if no one's got any questions, I can ask Matt a few. But um, we'd be happy to hear from anyone who wants to ask Matt. I'm sure you'd be happy yeah, to talk about the speech, the book. I also forgot to say that I really thought this was a terrific book. It's, it's, uh, I said to Matt, actually, earlier, it's, it's a really hard act to pull off, to write a new book about depression, which is quite a, a crowded area. Um, which and it's also crowded with books of self-help and all sorts of quite strange things. But I, I loved it—the the mix of information, statistics, but also the very personal angle on it, um, which took it through. Uh, and I thought a really common sense, pragmatic way of looking at it. So it's also a masterclass in writing a very, very short book and making it look like a big book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think we need to congrats. It's, it's a pamphlet, basically. It's a pamphlet. Yeah. <laughs> 300 pages. Yeah, that's what I like about Matt, he's a practical working writer, you know. Get it as long as you can, charge as much as you can. So. <laughs> that's it. So any questions? Come on, there must be one or two. We can wait 10 minutes and have yeah. a really At the back. Long. we got one at the back. We finish at 3.15, don't we? Someone tell me, yeah? Is that right? Useless chair. Thanks, Matt. Um, I, I don't know if it's on, but... Yeah. I really enjoyed reading the uh, book Reasons to Stay Alive. I know that seems like the wrong expression, but um, one of the things that struck me, um, having been through depression myself, was it's the best description of how physically exhausting depression is. And I don't think you can really separate the mind from the body. Mm. And um, just, I, I just, um, you, your description of how physically exhausting it was 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 really influential for me. Oh, thank so you. thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the things I wanted to get across. And what people who haven't had direct experience of depression or a lot of mental illness um, don't quite understand. They think it's a separate world. And have, having had depression, I really understood how the mind and body is interconnected and how we need a kind of holistic, I hate the word normally, but a holistic, um, scientifically based approach to health. And... Um, yeah, uh, I, I think, you know, we have this separation. We have these mental hospitals and normal, you know, hospitals, physical health. And really, you know, our, our brains and bodies don't have that separation. Like a physical illness can have mental effects. And mental illness can certainly have physical effects. And the two go together, you know. Uh, often, you know, like, like a, a horrible diagnosis of an illness can... A physical illness can trigger depression or anxiety and stuff. So we need to start seeing the whole picture of health and just talking about mental health in exactly the same way that we talk about physical health because they are, you know, it's the same thing. There should be no shame about talking about any sort of mental health problem because anyone with a brain can have something go wrong with that mind, you know, so it just needs to be a bit more grown up about it. I think it's, it's really interesting I mean, to, to get sort of philosophical about it. I think one of the things I thought about what you were saying in the book is that, that you know, mental and physical are the same. They're not separate. We have two different words. That's really deep in the roots of Western culture, isn't it? It's the Cartesian split. Yeah. It's the, the vision of, the, of a human being like a robot with a little person inside doing the levers. Yes. Um, so you can treat the two differently. But, but we actually, like to divide things up. I mean, even yeah. in, going back to like books, we love to compartmentalise and, and do genre and say, well, this is a thriller. This is science fiction. This is romance. This is literary, important book. And, you know, we have this... And it's actually, really, you know, it's telling stories. Mm, it's telling mm. stories around a campfire. Mm. We can take from absolutely wherever you want, and that's mm. freedom. And, yeah, with, with health, we've always done it. We used to have four humours. Yeah. You know, you see, you're literally splitting the body and the world into four elements. We love to compartmentalise 
yet. You know, because it's easier to see something if you break it down. And there is obviously reason with health to compartmentalise to an extent because then doctors um, train and get specialisms and stuff like that. So it is important. But in doing that, we, we, we shouldn't lose sight of the bigger picture. And, mm -hmm. you know, the more scientific knowledge we get, the more we realise that every single thing is connected. I mean, if I was to pick out one aspect of your fiction, which, which strikes me as being really original, it's that combination of things. So it's, I mean, like the humans is, is a science fiction novel to a certain extent, yeah. but it's, it's, it's about emotions and people and family and life. Um, and I love it. I mean, and, the, it, it, and it gets away from that compartmentalization. The only other book I've read recently that touched it in that sense was, have you read Emily St. John Manville's book? It's called... Uh, Station Eleven. Station Eleven, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is a science fiction novel. But actually, it's not. You know, it, yeah, it's a yeah. dystopian with other stuff in it. And, that's, and when you approach that, you think, yeah, that's really the right way to do it. Well, I, th I think the people who grew up on taking sort of science fiction films and books seriously... Um, you know, like in the 80s and stuff. They're now fully grown adults writing yeah. books now. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah. it could be a generational thing. But I, th I think we're, you know, it, it's all stories. You can have terrible science fiction novels, but you can have terrible literary fiction novels. Yeah, 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 you know. yeah, yeah. But the Emily, the, the Station Eleven, I loved it because of that, that thing where it's, it's post-apocalyptic, it's a, a troop of people going around performing yeah. Shakespeare in post-apocalyptic Canada. You know, go figure. And then on the side of their truck, they've got drawn by horses, they've got this line that says, survival is not enough. Yeah. And you think, my God, that must be from some great writer. It's from a Star Trek episode. So, <laughs> you know, anyway, any more questions? Got uh, one over there, just there. Two, we've got two. Two, here. three, I think. Uh, can I ask, uh, are you still going to do that book on masculinity? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, careful what I say. Um, for those, to contextualise it, for those that don't know, I, I, I'm a bit of a loudmouth and unthinking person on Twitter sometimes, and I sort of say what... So uh, when I have a, an idea for a book, I'll just sort of... It'll be just there. It'll just be out there. And I had three ideas for a book. One of them was a book on masculinity, and it was looking about how the sort of gender stereotyping can hurt men as well as women. And just to, just to say that, in the context of Twitter, in 140 characters, there's so many landmines that you can say. But I, I was actually coming at it from a mental health perspective and looking at things like the amount of men who, who don't um, go to the doctors about mental health, who don't like admitting um, vulnerability in that sense. They'll go to the doctor about chest pain, but they won't go to the doctor about suicidal thoughts or feeling vulnerable or down. And, you know, we have this language of man up and we sort of belittle men for having man flu. And, and behind that is this idea that men are the stronger sex, which doesn't help women and it doesn't actually help men in this sort of emotional framework at all. So I think um, I, I, it's a subject I'm interested in and I will go back to it. Whether I write a book squarely, solely about masculinity, I don't know. I'd have to leave Twitter first. Uh, I, th I thought it was a great idea, actually. I really did. Any more? Uh, yes, we've got one. Oh, no, one up there. Sorry. That's where the microphone is at the moment. So. We'll come back to you. Hi, Matt. Hi, this is my editor. <laughs> so, he's going to... 
Um, I was going to edit my speech. Is he asking about when you're going to deliver the next book? Yeah, maybe. I was actually going to ask you about, because you've written so many kinds of books, you've written for kids and adults and uh, fiction and non-fiction, and I was going to ask you if there is a difference between writing for adults and writing for children. Um, I think every book is different. So I, I always get in, you need to get into the place of the book before you start writing the book. And I've written a sort of non-fiction as well. But the actual feeling of writing is, is quite similar. It's either really, really horribly hard or it, 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 it's very, very good. It's quite a bipolar state. And um, I, 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 think, I think, you know, there's an argument for saying children's fiction is harder in some ways because children as readers are very attentive. I, I've written um, some children's books before and you'll go to an event and some... 10-year-old will put up their hands and say, on page 297, when the truth pixie used this herb to you know, explode a troll's head, you know, and he didn't use it before. And, and you, you have to be totally, um, totally watertight, and um, you, there can be nothing inconsistent with kids because they have a sharp so you have to be aware of that and at the same time you, you can't for one second be boring whereas w with adult books it actually helps to be boring yeah. you're more likely to win prizes and stuff <laughs> I absolutely agree I, I get asked the same question uh, when are you going to grow up and write a book for adults because I've always written for children and I always say well adults will read any old rubbish whereas a child audience you really well, have to work hard for them otherwise if they, they sent blood in the water like on an event like that you've had it so um, any more questions we had one here down here and at the back Hi. Um, I was wondering what it was like for you to receive support from loved ones and what it was like for those giving support to you. Um, yeah, well, it was, it, was, uh, it was crucially important that I had people who um, loved me and that I loved back um, when I was ill. I'm 24. It wasn't that many people because my sort of circle of friends sort of diminished quite um, quickly, not because they, they didn't want to know me, just because I sort of retreated from them. Um, but I was lucky to be in a relationship um, with Andrea, with you know, 24 to be in a long-term relationship, that's not a given. And so, you know, we'd known each other for five years, and um, so that it was just massively important to have someone that I could um, talk to about it. And she was the one who encouraged me to read. She was the one who encouraged me to write. All, all the things that helped me, you know, she was the trigger for them. So, she, you know, I, I, I always sort of worry what would have happened in the parallel universe without her. At the same time, I like to optimistically believe that life always gives you reasons to stay alive if you listen to, to them, if not right there in the present, but in some future self or you know, some, something you don't know about. You kind of owe it to your future self. But yeah, it, 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 it was unfathomably hard having depression. Without people I could talk to about it, it would have been even harder. Yeah. So very important. Can I just bring it a little bit back to something that yeah. struck me in the speech, actually? Um, I think a lot of us in, in the world of children's books are very worried about the approach that you touched on in you know, the education minister talking about you know, kids, you know, young people shouldn't read books and they go, or do art subjects. Mm. And it's this, we see it a lot when we visit schools, is that the disparity between the idea that reading is purely a, uh, a mechanical thing which will enable your average five-year-old to get a job as an investment banker 
uh, and the kind of approach that we take, which is actually it's about a lot more than that. It's about being human, exploring your humanity, exploring empathy with other people. Uh, and, and at the moment, what I'm really worried about, and I think we see a lot of it, is that the, the weight is on that first thing. It's testing yeah, and all the rest of it. Well, it's that utilitarian sort yeah. of grad grindism, that taking the joy and the imagination out of life and turning us all into just machines worshipping GDP figures and, mm. you know, mm. all that. And mm. I just think, you know, do we want to reduce life to that? I mean, I, you, you can argue against that on its own terms, that keeping society imaginative and creative and artistic actually is good for the economy. So on its own yeah. terms, it's wrong. You know, the person saying that, Nikki Morgan, was... You know, she had an arts degree, and you know, she, she's obviously in a position of power now. You know, arts degrees can give you all kinds of skills, but I think even that is beside the point. Mm. You know, we, we want to look at what sort of society we want to have, and what sort of people we want to lead us, and what sort of, you know, you, you know, our values of earning money and increasing status, and all those um, things that, that this sort of rat race, this competitive nature of our world. You know, do we want that? Or do you want a society based around kindness, looking after each other, actually thinking about other people, not trying to divide people up all the time into, you know, going back to different categories. And, um, you know, not seeing that the whole point of education is just because of the prize at the end, which is a job in, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers or whatever. Mm. I mean, it's also the, 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 the narrative always seems to be competition. Yeah, the UK is in competition with all these other countries elsewhere. And we must train all these young people. Yeah. It's almost like soldiers to fight in some war, and I'm not sure what the rewards are. Whereas, actually, when you read Siobhan's books and you yeah. read your books, what they're about is actually exploring the lives of people who are having problems, conflicts, troubles. So when you were reading The Outsiders as a young yes. teenager, and then again at yeah. 24, you're reading something which is about people having a really bad time, yeah. but actually coming out the other end of it. Coming out the other end of it. Even if they're not, or, you know, I'm not saying that every book has to have a happy ending, but no. you know, the idea of a, of a story and things changing and things moving, you know, when you feel stuck, either you know, in a serious place like depression or if just you're a child who wants to sort of leave your hometown or anything, stories are just massively attractive to, to the idea of um, unfixedness and just moving and just sort of being able to do what you want and I think you know proper freedom isn't being becoming a millionaire or earning loads and loads of money for the government the proper freedom is in there and, and any of us can access that mm. but you know so don't shut off those doors to imagination because mm. imagination can help you think about you know the mundane things like uh, what jobs you want to do but imagination can just help improve your life in a million other ways. Exactly. I mean, for me, one of the, the writers did that for me in my teens was a, a fellow Nottinghamshire man. Um, I was D.H. Lawrence, you know, yeah. and I read Sons and Lovers. Um, I just thought it was amazing, you know, and it, it was all about someone stuck in a place he didn't want to be, wanted to be somewhere else. And actually, we were talking about Robert McKee, an awful lot of stories seemed to be those journey stories quest stories, sort of young people looking yeah. for something else. D.H. Lawrence would have got into trouble on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah especially, really especially in his late blood and fascism <laughs> phase, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I kind of went off him a bit. <laughs> Once he got to the plume serpent, we're moving on, I think. So, any more questions? Sorry. Uh, yes, up there. Um, 
thank you. I was actually going to ask Matt and Tony as well, what are you reading at the moment and is it for work, for preparing a book or for pleasure? I'm rereading um, Invisible Cities by Italo, Italo, Italo Calvino because um, I've got to talk about it on the radio tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've just read for review, um, uh, which sometimes actually, when you ask to review a book, uh, however good the book is, it sort of becomes like work, you know. But I read a book um, which I thought was, and I said this to a friend of mine, actually, one of the best books I've ever read. And he sort of really? You, 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 you're telling The Humans by Matt Hayes. Yeah, well, that, <laughs> and the next book after that that I read that I thought was, actually, I do love The Humans. I think it's a superb book. Um, it's a book by a guy called John Walter called Friday's Not My Name which is being published, or has just been published by David Fickling, the amazing David Fickling. And it's about, it's an amazing um, book about slavery at the end of the American Civil War. And this white uh, English writer has put himself in the shoes of a 14-year-old black slave boy in um, Civil War America. And there's all sorts of problems with that. People get upset about that kind of thing. But he has brought it off in a brilliant way. I have never read anything like it. And it does all the things that stories should do. So I would highly recommend it. Nearly as good as The Humans by Matt. <laughs> yeah, just, just, if only you tried a bit harder. <laughs> Any more questions, please? Yes, we have one there. Hi there. Hi. Um, you said that you have to, if you listen hard enough, then life gives you reasons to stay alive. And um, for me, I mean, that book really sort of like made a massive difference and sort of like kind of is a reason, like there's so many different things that I take from that book. Oh, thank you. Um, I just kind of wondered, like, have you had that response from many people? And sort of, were you expecting that response when you wrote it? No, I don't think anyone, like, I, I think, you know, the publishers wanted to publish it, obviously, but I don't think, like, me or the publishers realised, and I, I don't, I'd love to say it's all down to the book, but I think it's also to do with the time where we're at now, I think people are just really ready to talk openly about um, mental health. I think it, we've been years, you know, when you think about, say, just depression alone, one in five people, you know, are, are going to suffer a major depressive episode in their lives. And that's the official figures. So there's lots of undiagnosed cases, probably. So there's a lot of people, we all know people who will suffer from this. And yet, we, given how prevalent it is, we don't really talk about it to um, the extent that it affects us. So, but I think this year, and like I, I noticed on the Edinburgh Fringe, there are loads of shows um, dealing with you know mm. things with Black Dog in the title, and loads of shows about depression. And I think we're at a point now where we're just saying, no, yeah, this is a big problem, and it's a problem for young people who are going to go up into adults who have problems as well. And we just need to get a handle on it and talk about it and grow the F up, really. You know? mm -hmm. I don't think in a way, actually, I mean, I've thought a lot about it. If looking back through previous generations of my family, I kind of thought, you know, actually, that was a period of depression for you know, my yeah. dad or my grandfather. So I read something, I can't remember who, who the quote was from, but actually, depression is a normal part of human life. It's as normal to be depressed as a human being, mm. for some of us, as it is to be gay or to be all sorts of things. Yeah. And the problem is that, that certainly in this century, it's become medicalized, it's become separate, it's become hived off 
Um, yeah. And that's a problem in itself. Yes, although at the same time, I think sometimes you know, I'm really against um, labelling and labels and stuff like that. But like, like, I, I, and one, you know, where there has been occasional criticism of the book. Um, it's been that I, I, I use the word depressive and I talk about myself as a depressive. Mm. And I think sometimes, you know, that comes under a criticism. But when you're dealing with something that's invisible, and that you, you, you um, alone know is a real intense thing, and there are degrees of depression. You know, when I had my breakdown, I was just literally transported to hell. It was like nothing else I'd ever known and hopefully will never know again. And... Um, you know, to explain that to people who look at you and think you look healthy and normal, you, you know, it is useful to actually have a diagnosis and to say, yeah. you know, I'm depressed yeah. or something. So I don't think you should ever be defined by an illness. Uh, but, you know, it's okay to say asthmatic, and I think for the same reason it's okay to say depressive, just as a useful yeah, yeah, tool. Yeah, good point. Anybody else? Yeah? yeah. Sorry. Hello, welcome back to Edinburgh. Thank you. <laughs> um, you've spoken about you know, having the conversation about mental health. Um, there was a, a question here about immediate support. Um, yeah. My concern is the level of professional support that's available. A good friend of mine waited a very, very long time for an appointment and was told by the professional he saw, mm. I don't have time to work through your barriers. Um, I was classed as an emergency case and, and rushed to the front lines um, and spent an hour talking to a woman um, who, as we moved forward to the way forward, um, mentioned as an aside that um, her expertise was in homeopathy. Um, thank you so much, NHS, yeah. for your, you know, your support. Well, any, Jeremy any, Hunt for you. Though, any yeah. faith. Yeah. or trust I had evaporated <laughs> and I just got through it on my own, um, more yeah. or less. Yeah. This is where we are. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I kind of got it through on my own because um, partly because the NHS and the, certainly the first GP I spoke to about it was, was pretty poor and stuff like that. But, you know, to be fair, with my experience, it was just more a sort of being phobic about... Um, hospitals and pills and just sort of being quite agoraphobic and not want to go. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think the priorities um, with healthcare, um, so much as there are priorities at all with healthcare, are rarely towards mental health. And it's again, seeing mental health as part of the physical health would, would not only sort of help stigma, um, help lower stigma, it would um, also probably end up with more actual hard funding and more sort of serious mistaking. Yeah. I mean, Weirdly, I went to see a homeopath as well um, because my my mum, I, I was just doing everything my mum said basically when I was ill because we were living at her house, and, and my mum, you know, she, she 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 pretends she's sort of intellectual and scientifically minded, but you know, she she's still star signs and homeopathy really. But so I went to the homeopath, and to be fair to the homeopath, the homeopathy didn't work, but the one person I actually spoke to who made any sense in a weird way was the homeopath because she was someone who'd had depression and got better. So even though I never spoke to a, a, a therapist, actually speaking to someone who um, had been there was a help. Though obviously that's not an advert for more funding for homeopathy. But <laughs> we had one more here, I think. Hi, Matt. Hi. Um, in 1989, um, we were allowed to read to the outsiders for mm. higher English, and it was 
a turning point in my writing career anyway. That's oh, wow. after reading it, I really wanted to write. Mm. And it's kind of progressed from there, so it's great to hear that somebody else liked the book as much as I did. Yeah, so that was at school, was it? Yeah, yeah. We yeah, because it's, school. you know, in America, everyone reads The Outsiders at school. It's sort of like, you know, up there with To Kill a Mockingbird or something. But yeah, yeah here, it's not, you know, I sometimes say The Outsiders and it's like... Yeah. No, yeah. it was after The Glass Menagerie, so you can imagine how... Oh, yeah, yeah, we yeah. Were. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. The Man for All Seasons, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um... Thanks for bringing it up, because um, I was wondering if you wrote The Outsiders, who would um, you be as one of the characters? And would you have changed the ending? Would, he, would the church not have burnt down and would he be all right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then... This is quite a niche Outsiders question. <laughs> um, right, OK. Uh, y- y- um, I always wanted to be um, Ponyboy Curtis, um, who was played in the film by C. Thomas Howell. And, um, but, yeah... Uh, he, 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 he was kind of sensitive and tough, so I, I like to think I am sort of sensitive and I discovered through depression that I've got a little bit of toughness in me. Um, so I'd like, I'd like to be him rather than the person who ends up burnt in the um, <laughs> Johnny in the, um, uh, in the church. But yeah, no, they, they, because it was about a group of friends, that book, The Outsiders, that you know, and I, I was going through a phase at school where I, I was sort of mildly bullied. I just didn't really fit in. I'd gone from a very small village school to a massive big school. And the outsiders, I'd just like to imagine that I was part of the gang of them in 1960s Oklahoma rather than 90s, 1980s Nottinghamshire. Anywhere seemed better than 1980s Nottinghamshire. <laughs> okay, I think we've got time for just one more. Someone got a question at the back? That has been up quite a few times. Yeah. Hi. Hi. I've just uh, recently read the Dear Stranger book, uh, which is a collection of letters about happiness, and I really liked your letter. Um, I also really liked Caitlin Moran's and Marion Keyes, and I just wondered if you'd read the other letters and which ones did you like? I haven't read all of them. I did read Caitlin's, and um, I've got the book at home. But because we're in the middle of moving house, it was sent to um, a house that's being renovated, which we're not living in. So I've only sort of had a peep at it in the car, and I read Catelyn, so I'll have to say hers, because that's the only one I've read, and she, she's, she's doing it. And, yeah. I'm going to write How to Be a Man about masculinity, so I've got to get in the <laughs> Yeah, looking forward to that. Great, OK, well, I think we, we've uh, come to the end of this session. I'd just like to say, I think... Um, I mean, last year uh, we had um, a couple of members of Siobhan's family here in the front row uh, and uh, I um, made a complete uh, fool of myself by saying they were the only trustees I took any notice of. The rest weren't very good. So I'm, oh, right. I'm not going to say anything like that this year. <laughs> but, um, but I will say that I think Siobhan would have absolutely have loved this session today. It was, it's absolutely the kind of thing she was interested in, the sort of book she was reading. And it's a great <coughs> humanist project, writing fiction. It's about humans, it's about people. And I feel that even though Matt Haig is obviously, he's been sucked over to the dark side of Marmite, uh, mm. I'm terrifically glad to have met him today. I'd like to give him one last round of applause. Thank, Thank you. We need to get you over to the yeah. to sign. Absolutely.
More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.